Hello, and welcome to the Better Relationship Podcast. I'm your host, Dolphin Casper, and I'll be exploring exciting and interesting conversations with people who have solutions, stories, and expertise to help you in your journey towards richer and more meaningful relationships. Stay tuned. Bill, really good to see you. It's been a little bit. Um, We got to share some time and space uh, in person at a a retreat that we both participated in as, as facilitators. I really appreciated meeting you and and getting to feel you and your work and and where that all comes from. Um, you're you're of a similar vintage as my mom, who who also had an interesting pathway through uh, her own self discovery, uh, but also like wanting to touch into like this is the question that I think you are answering, and and probably from a very early age, which is like what's really going on here, and and what actually brings it all together. Uh, in the context of of having a, a meaningful life and having beautiful, nourishing relationships, so I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's that's my sense of you, and I, and I enjoyed it a lot, uh, getting a chance to meet you and spend some time, and and with people who have spent their whole life sincerely asking these kinds of questions, I'm always just captivated and and uh, grateful in being able to be witness to to how that kind of knowledge and wisdom comes through. And so that's what I'm hoping to do for anyone listening. Um, Bill just has an incredible breadth of, of knowledge and experience and uh, and an ability to articulate and, and facilitate that for others. So thank you for taking the time to join me. And, and I'm looking forward to whatever comes through in the conversation. And I'll just hand it over to you if there's anything you want to say to start. No, I'm I'm really happy to see you. I'm glad you reached out. Yeah, I thought we had the uh, the whole event and outside of San Diego, I think was pretty amazing. It was it was really fruitful for me. It opened some different windows that I wasn't expecting. It was great to meet you. And and the benefit, I think, not just watching you work and other people work, was just that when we had the downtime and were able to share more about who we are and where we come from and um. So I really appreciate that. I'm glad to be here. Really glad to be here. Cool. Well, I think we're going to get into uh, you know family constellations. Uh, some people listening will have an awareness of of that particular framework um, and then the body of work there. But maybe we can start with something more personal. Uh, I believe when we when we come into this world, we're just wide open. Um, I don't think we're a, a, a blank slate, a tabula rasa uh, concept, but. Um, there's a lot of vulnerability and openness and availability, and I think it needs to be so. Like babies need to um, attune to and learn about their environment through their relationships, and 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 so that availability I think is inherent in in a in a newborn and a young child. And then somewhere along the way, there's disruption to that sense of like, oh, it's good to be open, it's good to be available to life in this vulnerable way. I'm curious if you can speak to for you. Are there any memories from early life where you kind of stopped and looked around and went, oh, like it's not supposed to be this way or any particular difficulties that you think might have been seeds for your desire to do this work in your life? Well, um, yes. When I came into the into the world, I was already preceded by two brothers, eventually became a family of seven. You know, well, there's... Three brothers, three sisters. Uh, I think just the early, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've focused on professionally, I had to, it was early trauma and early childhood. So that opens the window to looking at your own, well, what traumas did I have, you know? And um, my parents, my mom did all the work in the house. My dad worked, was very traditional back in the 50s. Uh, she stayed at home. Uh, she stayed at home mom. 
Uh, but there was an early trauma that I had, and I and I think I, that's the one that really sort of sat with me for a long time. And, and then it gets buried. And then when I was going through, I'll talk about it later, I was going through a divorce. And then I think this is what happens. You know, you're in a crisis and all of a sudden, where did this come from? And then you remember. So I broke my arm when I was three. I was playing with a buddy. And oh my God, this is back in the day when your mother would put you in the backyard with your friend at three, right? Running around. So I had fallen down cellar steps and I broke my arm in two places. And my mother took me to a doctor just up the street. And he said, I can't, I don't have a splint. I can't do it. Take, take him to the emergency room. And my mother went thinking they're going to put a cast on me and send me home. And I'm going to get a bowl of ice cream and I'm going to be fine. I didn't leave the hospital for some reason. And I don't remember the exact reasons. They decided to keep me in the hospital. Well, so that was it. I'm left. I'm in a ward with other kids. And... Both my parents would show up the next day. They'd come. They'd bring, like, goodies and stuff like that. And I'm thinking I'm going home, and then they would leave. Three days this went on. So that thing went really deep. And I worked with an EMDR uh, therapist because something got activated recently, um, just before the pandemic. And he said something really profound. It really touched me. He said it wasn't them coming into the room. Is you still have a an image of their backs when they're leaving. Um, so I guess in a way we'd call it abandonment. So that, that was probably the first thing, like this isn't supposed to happen. What's happening here? Uh, and my parents were really, they were really attentive parents. My mother wanted to take me home. Uh, and that, that event still, it affected a lot of my uh, later uh, relationships. You know, but it was buried. It was buried because I I didn't remember it. But when my girlfriend said, "Well, I'm going to go away with my girlfriends," it was like, "Oh, what? Wait, wait!" But I didn't know what the waiting was. I didn't know what the agitation was. But the 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 good thing about this story is I got revenge when I was three because I caught chicken pox in the hospital and brought it home to the entire family. So, uh, balancing. I was balancing. Yeah, everybody gets sick, but I was coming out of it, so I was the only one without chickenpox. But so I think, and so I was I was married to my high school sweetheart, and I was going through a divorce. But prior to that, with with all the turbulence of the marriage, I needed to go into therapy. I I didn't know what was going on. I was struggling with how to make this work. So I went into therapy, and it was in therapy that I realized that this other event was there. And my therapist said, you'd really be good at this. So I think when I the divorce happened, I looked around for a while and then decided to become a therapist. And then I started going deeper into, okay, what else is there? What, what else, you know? And I would talk to my mother. She was still alive at the time and talked to my mother. She remembers that about other, other events, other things. And she was really great about that. And she would say, well, we're doing this or this was happening or... I remember when your brothers would beat you up. There was all that rough and tumble kind of stuff. Um, but it was that, I think it was that primary, I always call that dolphin. I always call, we all have something like that. I call it the primary wound. What is your primary wound? Bad leaves when you're two. I worked with a young woman from Italy. Her father died of cancer when she was three. And, and she says, I have dreams about him. I said, okay, that's how you remember him. But she's a young woman. She's a grown woman now. She's like 35, 36, married. So I always, I always 
think about what is what is that thing and that's the first thing in childhood you were mentioning you're coming in i had vague memories of of my older brothers memories of my house i remember the stairs i fell down but that was probably the big event like okay life is not that safe yeah you know and and with that experience initially like i'd say maybe i'm asking about your your young adult life did that experience have kind of clear memory in you or was there an uncovering that was required to kind of go oh like that those days in the hospital i'm just curious if that was a clear memory or whether that was something that got uncovered after i think it just faded as i got older and got into growing up and then got into adolescence and high school i think it faded However, I think it was always an operation, especially when I was feeling like I, need, I didn't want to like leave home. My high school buddies, we, we, we would ski and they would want to go away for a ski weekend. A friend had this great house in Pico Peak up in Vermont. And I was like, I don't know. And I'm thinking, I'm looking back and I went, I went, but it was always, I didn't want to leave home. So I'm thinking that's connected because there, there was a security to that, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, we would do trips to the beach and stuff, day trips, but anything about leaving that security, and then looking back, I said, how to be connected to that? Because there was an uncertainty. Yeah. There was an uncertainty. Yeah. And so you talk about the primary wound, and uh, one of the things that I'm often <clears throat> thinking about and working with when I'm working with people or if I'm just having conversations around these, these topics, which <laughs> I do often, um, I like to talk about also core belief. Because what I believe happens, and I'm happy to kind of jam with you on this, is for a young child that experiences a significant insult to development through any form of trauma, including that kind of abandonment experience, mm -hmm. the child's natural inclination is to, to sense make around that experience Absolutely. because it's so intense and it's so destabilizing and, and they're looking for stability. And one of the ways that we create stability for ourselves is to draw conclusions. And then we're meant to, we're meant to sort of go, oh, this is how it is. But what happens with trauma, especially outside of the context of the right environment and the right opportunities to integrate the trauma is the core belief tends to um, shut down our openness and shut down our growth in the direction of integration and healing. So as an example, or maybe we can get in because I know you've done lots of work around your piece. Can you identify any kind of core belief that you created that was like your way to make sense of that initial abandonment trauma that then became a kind of unconscious projection onto anything that looked or felt similar. Oh, sure. Well, core beliefs, so I just use a different language. So we, not necessarily, it, it can be that based on the trauma or this the, tr the tradition we come out in of the conditioning we come out of. This is how it has to be. Like dad leaves home and one of the core beliefs is he left home because something must be wrong with me. I was a bad kid so that 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 sort of goes deep especially if you're younger if you're 15 or 16 maybe not so much yeah the core belief is the core belief is i i think if i, if I got this i really wanted to get close to people but not too close so the core belief is if i get too close they'll leave but dolphin this is all unconscious the belief goes really deep i'm not i'm not thinking like, oh, I really want to go out and date Debbie. I'm 15 or 16. I really like her. I want to move closer to her. No, this is all an operation. It's that little whispering. Yeah, but you don't, you know, she could leave. You're not really hearing it, but it's kind of, it's kind of there. Yeah, so it's in there. 
Yeah, and it's a somatic whisper for the most part, especially yeah. if these traumas took place. Like most of the seeds of our of our deepest wounds are pre-verbal. So the way that we formulate memory at that time, there's still memory, but it's not a, a conceptual memory. It's not an intellectual memory. It's like the body, like uh, Bissler Vandelkoek talks about, the body keeps the score, right? Like all that's very somatically rooted and it's whispering to us through sensation that's like apprehension or fear or tightness or you know these mm -hmm. things that are unconscious reminders of, oh, this is like that other time be careful or or yeah, get out of here or whatever that is so warning sure yeah exactly and 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 it should be so right like it's a brilliant system but we misinterpret and, and we don't really learn how to captain the system so yeah i'm wondering if we could get into that a little bit like how do we move from because i think a lot of people listening will likely resonate with uh, with an early experience that was very painful and traumatic where there's some cloudiness around the memory but but as especially if we've done some work we start to go, oh, like to start to connect dots and go, oh, like that's probably because of that. And oh, that makes this make, make, make way more sense. How do we begin to move ourselves along a trajectory of, of being operating out of mostly unconscious uh, patterns of, of coping from those early wounds to awareness of them? And then eventually more of a mastery of like, how do I navigate the way in which my unresolved past arises and shows up in my present life? Well, I think there's a lot of probably a lot of different methods that uh, if, if you're just going about your daily life and you're unconscious, it probably won't show up. Maybe if you have a really good friend or a partner, they may they may hey every time we do this, you always do that. What's going on? But it may not. You, you can butt heads. It may not. It may, it may not open a space where you can really sit and go, okay, what is going on? What is going on? I think if you get in a certain method, was whether it's the practice you do or family constellations, you can start to, you know, set up a, an environment that could replicate um, that early trauma and you could really see like, oh, this, th this is happening. Or you have a felt sense like, yeah, I always get scared when so this is happening. I'm not sure why. So your consciousness is starting to expand a little bit because you're, it's coming into your awareness. My wife and I always get into fights Every time she says A, B, and C, or she's getting ready to go do something, I get a little anxious, and she starts to point it out to me. So if you can hold that intimate space and, and listen to her, that'll help. I just think in group work, of course, I am um, believe in the work I do. So, I, And I'll just share something I did this weekend. There's a, a, I was working with a woman, and she was sitting next to me. I was interviewing her, but I pay attention to the body, and she was talking about how she... She's difficulty with her partner. She'd been with this woman for seven years, a significant amount of time. They have her child, they have, you know, blended family. But she, every time her partner gets upset with her, she wants to disappear. And she was, and I said, well, tell me about your family system. Well, you know, I was eight months old. My parents, her dad was in a rage, but she was doing this leaning back as if the rage, you know, my interpret as if the rage was coming she said, I'd be in my crib holding on to the edge of the the crib and just listening to this. I said, that must have been terrifying because you hear your, these two voices getting loud, screaming, people you care about. So what I did is I replicated that. I had two people hold a, a scarf. I said, come up here and hold on to this. This is you at the edge of the crib. And, and I had some support behind her. 
So she could literally bring it into her body and sob and sob and sob and sob and sob. And then I brought in her partner. And I said, the crib is also a metaphor for a barrier. You know, you're here and your partner's on the other side. And so that's, that's how it came into presence for her, that that's what she was afraid of. Because if, if you're angry at me, the only thing I know how to do is, is to disappear because it's too much. <laughs> and I said, but is your partner angry or you're just, you know, doing adult things like you said you were going to be home or you're going to do this thing? She goes, mostly that's it. But she, she goes, well, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And I just want to disappear. I get, I get terrified. I said, okay, there's a difference. It's not the same. There's a difference between the eight-month-old and your partner, you know, and our partners hold us accountable. And sometimes they get irritated with us. So, it, But it was a body thing. It was, it was in her body. And by replicating the holding onto the crib, she could really release it. She just was sobbing and sobbing with the support. And then when her partner came in, there was a really nice, and her partner had her own stuff. I don't know what it was, but I, I suspected, I said, I asked the partner, say to, say to uh, Liz, and when you disappear, I get scared. So, you know, trying to work through their own stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I noticed that, and I, I, I'm sure you know this too, um, so much of the patterns that show up in relationship are very archetypal. Like the, the, they, they cross families and cultures and, and, and you know, generations. Um, and then each of us has our own particular flavor, flavors of those archetypes in terms of our, our upbringing and our childhood experiences. Um, but you know, there, there's something that goes on there when, when the nervous system gets activated. And, and I believe, and we actually had a conversation about this. I want to talk with you a little bit about it because we both kind of looked at each other and we're like, yeah. Um, I believe our, our unconscious system is, is actually productively recreating the very dynamics of our childhood so that we can integrate them. So we can heal from them. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a current push, I think, within and sort of as a part of this trauma-informed care, which is, is to, in a certain way, kind of make a dysregulated nervous system a bad thing. How do we regulate? How do we make sure we don't get triggered? How do we stay away from these scary places that re-traumatize us? Now, I believe that there is a way in which we can be, um, uh, you know, ineffective and even problematically reactivating these patterns, that that happens when it's cyclical and there isn't a safe environment within which those pieces can really find regulation again and find soothing and find connection. Okay, well, then you're just repeating an old pattern. But I see a, a significant problem in a trauma-informed approach that that is first trying to make sure we're not dysregulated and or trying to as quickly as possible get regulated. So could we talk a little bit about that and how you yeah, see it? And yeah, yeah like where's the where's the where's the balance point where we're taking care of of human beings in their pain, but we're not avoiding the very thing that most meaningfully helps us heal? Well, I mean, I, I suppose when if someone from the outside was seeing what I was doing with this woman, she she was giving me clear clues. Her body was giving me clear clues. So I, I replicated the environment she was when the trauma was happening, but she wasn't re-traumatized. She wasn't. She was releasing. It, 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 and I think that's what confuses people. I, you know, we all get dysregulated. I mean, you know, you, you're walking down the street or you're, you're in, a, in a 
airport and you hear a woman scream, you're dysregulated that moment because you don't know what it is. And then you realize, oh, you calm down. We get this, and this is what people don't understand. We get dysregulated, and this is the thing about triggers too. Dysregulation is an interesting thing. I, I was telling people, you know, a trigger, you could look at, you could look at a woman or look at a sunset and just have this amazing bodily experience. I said, that's a trigger. You could, you could look at someone and she reminds you of your 16-year-old first love, and you're like, oh, and your body's like shaking and stuff. You know, it's not, but you're shaking. You're, you're being activated. You're being dysregulated. So I think it's taken on a negativity. But I hear you. It's an opportunity when, dysregu now, when dysregulation happens, and I want to be really clear, dysregulation is not the same as disassociating. I think that's an extreme form of dysregulation. It's a way we had to protect ourselves, we'd leave, because the trauma was too much. Cool. And that needs to be addressed in a different way, because you need, the person needs to help to be brought back into their body. But um, I, I think it's an opportunity when the dysregulation comes, here's an opportunity. What is, it, it's an opportunity to learn more about myself and what I've been avoiding. I think it's an opportunity to learn and to teach. It's like from the Jungian, it's like when the shadow shows up, you don't run away from us. Okay, keep showing up. All right, I better hey, there's another lesson here. Yeah, so I think there's too much emphasis put on re-traumatization. I assume when I'm working with people, that's probably going to happen, and it's my job to discern how much someone is willing to sit in it and how much they need just to to come back to center take a breath and calm down because you could re-traumatize someone just by talking to them and that's happened to me i'm ha interviewing someone and they start to freak out and so i know enough to say okay you don't know me i haven't done anything yet who am i right now so obviously i've become their father their perpetrator and then, okay, and then, but let's shift your focus so you can see me, and then maybe we'll do some work around your perpetrator if you're comfortable doing that. Because <laughs> that's the thing I think you were talking about. Those That stuff is right at the surface, but it's unconscious. And then we get activated. And if we can really grab it and say, and especially in an environment, either in the the work you do or some big holding container, this is an opportunity to... Maybe just let it go. Not let it go, but let it just not grip you anymore. Yeah, I, I, I love, uh, I love playing with language, and you know, memory is an interesting thing. You know, we talked a little bit about how the body, the body keeps the score, but um, I like to think of memory as re dash collection. We we, we recollect from partly abstraction, partly images and concepts and feelings. And each time we remember something, we're recollecting it together in, into literally a new something. It's not the same, but it's it's similar enough that it does something in our body. Mm -hmm. And and to me, these these recollections are are specifically the opportunity to integrate. I assume you know Daniel Siegel and some of his work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he talks about integration as essentially the the coherent and collaborative interaction between differentiated parts and and you know disintegration or, or a system that's out of integration means there are differentiated parts that are not operating 
in a cohesive way. Mm-hmm. And 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 the 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 kind of fracturing of the human psyche and our behavior around that is a is a kind of protection and survival mechanism but it becomes dysfunctional if we don't allow those pieces to become coherent again to to become in rightful relationship with one another and and i believe family constellations is as a beautiful frame to work with those pieces can you talk a little bit about family constellations and 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 your take on how, how close to the mark you think I am in terms of no, no uh, your, Jesus, yeah. I just we just hear it differently in the language. So I was listening to a podcast. Well, I was listening to a book when I was walking, and one of my favorite writers that I recommend him to anyone, Mark Epstein. He's a Buddhist psychiatrist in New York. He's written several books, "Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart," "Trauma of Everyday Life." But in his recent book, he was talking. He's um, referencing another therapist he he knows who mentions that. With trauma, right? With trauma, we need protections. I talk about, okay, that's what you had to do, dissociate. That's what you had to do. There's no shame there. But like you said, it becomes dysfunctional if it's if we're worried about not fun, not living into our full potential because we're afraid of the universe, afraid of our jobs, afraid of the people around us. But he, he says something, if this, I forget he was quoting, if we don't have a chance to grieve whatever was happening, and, th- and I did a whole piece this weekend, the, to grieve the trauma, to grieve the loss, to grieve the pain, because maybe in the moment we weren't allowed to, maybe in the moment we had to protect ourselves from it. He said, well, then we project it into the future and we become afraid of the breakdown. So we're always worried about the breakdown's coming, but it's not a new breakdown. It's, it's, we're afraid of breaking down. And with the beauty about what I like about constellations, it, you can see this and, and perhaps the client is willing in the holding environment, you can offer them a chance to grieve the trauma, grieve dad's dying, grieve dad's leaving, grieve all the stuff you couldn't. And and the biggest thing we're afraid of is the pain, which is the breakdown. Well, you'll get stuck there. But the thing is, you're stuck now because you're always on the lookout for it. You're always on the lookout. So I'll say a little bit more constellations. I was so happy you were able to participate in participate in. And I said something to someone there. I forget who, because we're doing a journey to secure. I said, constellations will show you how you became insecure. (laughs) And then you guys can take it over from there. (laughs) Here's how it happened, right? Uh, Yeah, it's it's a multi-generational, I call it a trauma therapy, where we look at the what's happened, the events that have happened in the system over time that still get carried forward, whether it's Big events like uh, forced immigration, the Holocaust, um, grandpa losing his mother when he was five. How does that energy come down through the system? If grandpa lost his mother, then he wasn't available to your mother a little bit. And so all that comes down. And then how do you carry it? Are you still carrying some of that? And then there's personal trauma, which we both know about. What happens in the family of origin? Dad dies, mom dies, there's violence, um, or there's uh, physical or sexual abuse. So Constellations uses other people. It's a combination of many methods, kind of like psychodrama, but with a twist. There's no acting out. Uh, And you set up the issue at hand, whether and you, you set up who you need for you as the client to help you take the next step forward. Uh, there's probably many pieces that can be plugged in, but in all you, you just need to work on one puzzle piece at a time. And like with this woman I was explaining, was was 
her body was so uh, raw in a, in a way. And when I set that image up, because I was, I was focused on that image, she was able to get in touch with that deep fear because I think it's what, based on what she said with her interaction with her partner, that fear kept circling. And if you're afraid to touch it, if you're afraid to go there, because it brings up all these memories about what happened in childhood. But when you're held in a group, or even if you're doing it one-on-one, it can it can dissipate. It won't hold you anymore. Will you still feel sad now and then? Sure. The sadness will come like a wave. You'll feel it. Oh, yeah. It's the same thing as you have a wistful, you hear a song on the radio and you think about that 16-year-old girlfriend. Same, oh, oh, wow, that was great. I remember her. Yeah, and then you keep driving. That to me is healing. I don't think the, mem- the memories don't go away. What happened can't be undone. What happened can't be undone. Uh, but what we can sort of make peace with it or grieve it, and like I said earlier, many of us hadn't had the opportunity to grieve it. Um, and so I think Constellations offers that opportunity. And whether it's reconnecting to mom and dad, we both witnessed something in San Diego with that incredible reaching out to mom who died when the young man was nine. Uh, that event and many other events sort of control how we move in the world. Keep We want to stay safe. We can't go here. We want to, until we can heal that deep love, which is really what it is. Um, yeah. Can can we talk a little bit about the IROM? The, the, there's, so there's a process that you facilitated uh, at the retreat in San Diego. Um, it's the Interrupted Reaching Out Movement. And uh, I, I, I just love it because no one gets through childhood without some form of that. It's impossible. Childhood, right. It's I'm impossible scared. for a parent or even a family system or a community to always be there when the child wants them to be there. And so we all had, and of course, we fall along a, a fairly significant spectrum of that, but but it feels so so fundamental and, and, and um, sort of central to where our insecurity comes from. Mm-hmm. That, that feeling of, of, of hurt, of grief, of dysregulation, and this just in, inherent desire to reach out to those that are close to you and that they're not there. And, and I want you to speak to, uh, I'd love for you to speak to the IROM more as sort of like a, a bigger sure. concept, but then if you want to share about what happened in San Diego or, or any of your other IROM experiences, I think it would be really helpful to people listening to better understand how that experience um, kind of, crystallizes in them a sense of, of, of unmet need. Well, yeah. I mean, Bowlby, you know Bowlby, he's the father of attachment theory and, and Mary Ainsworth. So he would talk about that. And when the IROM is the interrupt reaching out movement, that's the event. It, it, the movement towards the mother, usually it's the mother. I've seen it. I've seen it with the father too. The movement towards gets interrupted. Now that can happen in any given day. Mom's busy. She goes to work, but she shows up again. So the child learns how to regulate, and 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 it, and it it's not so severe where mom's away for so long. And I worked with substance abusing mothers, and the mom was away for too long. So it, the baby's pushed past self regulation, and then the terror and the drama comes in. So an IROM would work there, because Bowlby said, was Bowlby he said if you or no, it's actually um, Winnicott, the famous child psychiatrist. Who said if we all we need is twenty five percent of our parents, but you know we're, we think we need a hundred percent. No, actually, a two year old doesn't want a hundred percent of their parents because they don't want them in the, in the Legos and stuff like this. Get away, well, you're a dad, so you know. Okay, 
say hi to me, tell me I'm doing a good job, and then go away. If, if you knew how many times I've heard, get away, daddy, you would love it. And I think that's just part of maturing, but they need, they need, yes, obviously food, clothing, and shelter. They just need you to, to sort of be there, to drop in, do them, take care of them, and then go. So the IROM really, the actual method, I would call it the, the CROM, completing the interrupted reaching out movement. I tend to use it when there's been a real break. I, I did it for myself because of the break in the hospital. There was a break. My parent, I felt there was an abandonment. And that can happen with uh, facts. Mom dies. Mom leaves. Um, mom is removed from the child at birth for a significant amount of time. Uh, there's a bonding issue there. Uh, even though grandma might be around and auntie and the baby's getting nurtured, there's there's some felt sense that something's awry. So I would use it then. But I, yes, on a broader thing, uh, babies, part of growing up is to learn how to self-regulate, to learn how to, okay, okay, it's time for lunch, it's time for lunch, and mom's 10 minutes late. Oh, but she shows up. Okay, and that's that's we all needed to do that somehow to figure out our environment, and it's all all unconscious. And then you learn how to take care of yourself, or your expect your expectations are lowered. It's different when it becomes extreme, it, when when you're you're waiting and you're past self soothing. Self soothing is you you know when you're infant or you're a toddler, you're sucking your thumb and you're playing with your mobile, or you're la la lying in bed. Because you know mom always shows up, but when you goes past that and goes past it, then it can get very disruptive Or because we don't have the tools yet. And now we go into angst and terror. Well, terror could be more extreme. So I like the IROM to complete that. And one thing we I don't think we ever did talk about underneath the interrupting reaching out movement and Bowlby talks about is rage. Because even though mom may have died in a car accident, for a tod a three-year-old, they don't they they're told they feel there's a missing, and then there's an, a rage. And especially what I've seen it is when you you're actually abandoned, not because of death, but you choose to go out and do drugs. I would see that in these two and three-year-olds. The mother's trying to reconnect with them, and the child out of nowhere takes a toy and crashes them on the mother's head. Or bites the mother, and they said, "Okay, that's not connected. It might be connected to something that's been going on, but I'm thinking it's something. It's a child's opportunity to go, um, and that comes up sometimes. That comes up when the when the client is making the walk to the mother. The rage comes up. I can't. Yeah, I said, okay, let it out. Let it out. You want to stop? No, I'm not stopping. <laughs> okay, let it out." Or they fall to the ground, they start crying and pounding the thing, but they still want to make the move. They know they want to make that movement. Yeah. And then they'll cry, they'll let it out, and they'll make the movement. Or, you know, you were never there, the stories will come up. The stories can be protections. I had to take care of myself because you... Okay, see if you can let go of the stories. You want to go on? Yep, I want to go on. Uh, I did this one I'll share... This was actually, it, it, all of us were in tears. It, it was so beautiful. A woman, she was talking about her being born, um, and she had two her both her hips were dislocated. Right? So mom took her home, so there was that bonding, but uh, they had to schedule a surgery. 
when she had enough body mass and weight. So four months, she went into the hospital and she was pretty much left there. I think grandma came once in a while, but mom hardly showed up at the hospital. And I said, French. the woman was in her, she was in it. She was crying. She's like 55 and she's, she, she can feel it. My mother didn't show up. My mother, my mother left me there. My mother left me there. Yes, her legs were fixed. So I said, let's do this iron. And we, I talked about it. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that, I do. I took push to a so let's, let's just see. So pick someone to represent your mother. So the woman's on the other side of the room. And she's willing to go. She starts and she's shaking, shaking. I said, follow your movement. So she, she goes down to the floor and then she pulls herself along the floor like a soldier. And it's because she had no legs. Her legs weren't working. And she's pulling herself. Oh my, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. And she's pulling and making that crawl and she's crying and she's screaming and, but she's going. And she, and she gets into her mother's lap and she just, you know, we put a blanket over her and she's sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And the connection is, is healed. And, and it's, it's healed internally. She's, she's making, she's healing that, that gulf that's been created that she still carries. It's now come together. You know, one of the things that I often will speak to is that the fact that it's so dysregulating, that it's so um, excruciating to us to not be connected, tells me that that that's that there's an inherent knowledge in us of the rightness of that connection, and and that when we don't have a chance to do that, or there's something that seems to get in the way of doing that, there is an inherent and powerful desire to reconnect in spite of all of the pain and grief and trauma that might be piled over top of it under it all is this core uh, intrinsic love and knowing to reconnect to yeah. to come back to love and and I use the word complete and completion a lot in the work yeah. that I do mm -hmm. I believe if we don't think of ourselves so much as like these these automatons like I'm over here doing what I do as a separate entity entirely disconnected from the world sure. but more like we're kind of nodes or like waves in the ocean we're all we're all actually up to the same thing yeah and we move in slightly different ways but but there's an undercurrent that wants to bring it all together um you know you talked about uh people needing to grieve and then if that grief gets interrupted then then again it's, it's left as an incompletion in us yeah, well, uh, my colleague and I, uh, and I, I witnessed this when I was in, in Calgary a few years ago. I said, what am I seeing was interrupting grief? Something was coming, and that's why we put the name up. My colleague said, I said, it's interrupted. You're not allowed for whatever reason to grieve. And then some of the things, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but some of the things is there's acute grief. Dad dies, mom dies, your, your, your friend dies, your dog dies. But there's the things we... Don't grieve. Like, I really wanted to go to the University of Michigan to play football. And my dad said, nope, you have to go to medical school. And I never grieved that. Yeah. Or even when you're younger, the, the things that, you know, that were t told to me I couldn't do or I wouldn't, wasn't allowed to do, those are like those mini griefs that cut. So we did a whole ceremony this past, 
thing of how do you create a grief container, whether it's in a therapeutic environment or your own grief container, where you can sort of put those things down. It was powerful. People were sobbing, putting the things in the fire. I always wanted to and never was allowed to. And then afterwards, it was like, and we all have those. Well, we all have those. I wanted to go left and my mother made me go right. Yeah, and, and there's sometimes that's the way it, it should be. You know, sometimes we have to give up, especially as you know, as we come into adolescence and adulthood, we start to see that life it has to involve some kind of compromise or sacrifice or, you know, learning to, to expand our context beyond the current frame so that we can include more. Or a matured. Yeah, yeah. Still grief the pinch. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. The the grief isn't different, but but we can create a different context for it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I was listening to uh, Gabor Mate speak. Uh, he was speaking about what's going on in in Israel and Palestine right now, and um, he brought up. I don't remember his name now, but he brought up uh, uh, a German general, I believe it was, who was kind of the the military architect behind behind the Second World War, and. Um, someone asked him a question that, that stuck out to Gabor Mate. He said, uh, he was asked a question like, what did you know? Because he, he was, he was mostly in rooms, you know, planning and architecting and he wasn't, he wasn't at any of the concentration camps. And so he was asked, what did you know? And, and he said, uh, and I'm sure this involved incredible amounts of self-reflection. Um, it's the wrong question. The question is not, what did I know? The question is, what could I have known if I if I really wanted to find out? Mm. And and like that one really touched me, and, and I think it's so relevant for us when it comes to learning about ourselves, when it comes to healing, when it comes to understanding our family system. Is like actually, it's all there. Like all of what we can discover and learn is all there, and in many ways we get in the way of of getting to know it because of the implications of knowing ourselves more deeply. And and my mom used to say that she she seduces people into wanting to know the truth. Yeah. And and that's significant in the midst of a world that mostly is seducing us into wanting to feel better, I guess, you know, so yeah. so that things can be sold to us and people can kind of control and manipulate each other. But I would be just curious what you would have to say about that that distinction of like, how do we support, inspire, seduce each other into being more interested in the truth? And, and yeah, what are, what are the challenges that go along with that? Well, I mean, there, there's various ways to do that. You, I mean, but I, I like what you just said, because, um, I think it, we, it's, it's easier to stay in the silo. It's easier, easier to stay in the bubble. And we live in a society, we live in a society where it's a happy society. There's a pill for everything. Right, um, all you just need is you know all you just need is to lose fifteen pounds, and you'll get you know all the all the relationships you want, all that stuff, it, because it's but that's not that's not reality. It's it's both. It's both, and uh, it's it's because you know Buddha said it: life is suffering, but there's a way out of suffering, and part of the way out of suffering is accepting the fact that life is suffering. Um, and, and, and then what are you doing to contribute to your own suffering? 
And sometimes it's holding, you know, it, it's like the joke. I was just saying it to a colleague of mine. It's, well, my arm hurts, doc. My arm hurts when I lift it up. And the doc says, well, don't, don't lift it. Stop doing that. Or my arm hurts when I do this. Well, well, don't do that. I mean, it sounds so stupid and very clear. And there's something about that. And, and there's something that you work in relationships. It's, and when you're the couples and we go into, I need this, I need this, or I'm blaming, I'm blaming. Well, what happens if, if you pull back and stop doing that? Because now you have to go into yourself. And that, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather live in the not knowing. I just heard a friend say, I'd rather not know what's going on with my husband's medical reasons. Are you serious? Really? Nope. It's, we have a good life. I don't want to. Okay. Well, one day it's going to show up probably better if you know, you know, but, but that's a, I'm saying that to extrapolate into a larger context. You're right. People. And so how do you do that is I use humor. This is who I am is how I move through the world. I use humor kind of as a cold water. Uh, okay, I, or I'll do something like that, or I'll say something, and or I'll I'll be very specific. I was working with a couple, and I go, okay, so how long has she been your mother? This very attractive couple been together for nine years, really great jobs. Money's not an issue, but he was raised was so traumatized by his mother, engulfing all over him, just all kinds of stuff, and she just wants him to, you know, she wants more of him. But he, when she, she says that, he retreats. And I said, so how long has she been your mother? And then he gets all mad at me. I said, no, 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 okay, it's okay to get, it's easy to get mad at me, but I don't think that's the issue here. Because I, I, what is it? I poked the bear a little bit. And he knows it, he knows it. And, but then there's a loyalty. I, I, in a way, the things we hate, we're also loyal to. I heard this great I heard this great statement by John Tarrant who's a therapist and a um, he wrote, he's a Buddhist but he wrote this thing about we all live in a in a in a room and once the windows and if you open the window we're terrified to go outside the window because we're so comfortable with what the room offers us even if it's terrible stuff because the terror is going outside the window into the unknown, the not knowing. And yet that's where we all need to go because that's where, that's the next step. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, uh, just because it's so kind of top of mind for people right now, um, when we look at larger conflicts, and I think this is an intuition that a lot of us have, especially if we've done deeper work, um, what role does our incomplete family stuff play in how these larger conflicts unfold? Like thinking of Israel and Palestine, where like no one in that region is untouched by the violence and by the death, and and like everyone knows someone, and usually by you know like one degree of separation that that has been you know hurt, wounded, raped, killed, um, like that's a part of the family system, of course. So yeah, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on that. And, and maybe as we get, like, this is obviously not enough time, but yeah. if you want to touch into, like, if you had a salve that you could bring to, to places like uh, the Middle East, like, what would it be? What do you think they need there to 
to sort out some of that stuff? You know, just the small questions that I want to. Yeah, ask. no. It, well, first of all, that's too big. That's too big. I, I, and I, and I say this with all the respect for everything going around the world. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm small, and that's really big. But I will talk about this. There's a great book written called The Ancestor Syndrome. I might have mentioned it to all you folks in um, San Diego. Um, and this woman, I think she's gone now, but she doesn't do family constellations, but she does multi-generational socio sociograms. And she looks at these larger contexts that have been going on. So right now we have this conflict in Israel, but if you, you zoom out and zoom out even, the, the conflicts have been going on for centuries. They take on a different modern feel, but there's been everything you said, death and destruction, but they've been going on for centuries. So I would think, let's take a larger look. And, and Schutzenberger, her name is, she She would look at these larger things. She said, you know, it makes sense. It, she said, look at when we invaded Iraq. She says, it's the Crusades all over again. You have white Christians going in to free the Middle East from the Muslims. Okay, we have different, you have a different cast of characters. But she says, this stuff hasn't changed. How do you change it? I think you have to go inside. I think you have to do your own work. Um, and, and there are people doing that. There are people looking at the broader context, and they're, and they're paying the price for it. I have friends in Israel who are Israelis, uh, and they're looking at the bigger picture. They're looking at the whole, who they are, the government stuff, and they're really taking a step back. Uh, and they're paying the price for it because most of us in all these large contexts, whether it's the environment, wars and stuff, we just see our side and we get stuck in the us versus them. And that keeps us small. You're different than I am. Uh, the reason the Nazis were able to, or other people, the Japanese back in the day, were able to do the things they do is because if you're other, you're not, you're not us. So I, I can do these horrible things to you. You really have no life. And that's really thinking small versus thinking larger, thinking in the broader context, thinking about the whole. My good friend, Francesca Mason Boring, when people would want to go out and save the whales, all that, all, all that stuff is vital. Or deal with Mother Nature or help the environment. She would say, deal with your own mother first before you go save Mother Nature. And I think there's something to that. So when I hear that, it's like, let me, let me go into myself, look at all my pain, all my childhood trauma, my generational trauma, right? And then see where, how I can come to peace with it. So when I really am drawn to go into the Peace Corps or drawn to go into uh, some human rights group, the turbulence is not going to throw me off. I, I may cry. I may feel horrible. But the turbulence is not because there's something in me that's settled. So that's what I offer. Yeah. And, and I, what I hear in that, what you just said is that's the antidote to the tyrannized becoming the tyrant. Yeah. yeah. If, if you, if you haven't come to terms with the ways in which you have been tyrannized and oppressed and hurt, then, then you are so susceptible, more than susceptible, it is likely that as soon as you are given power and control, that that's the way you'll use it. Rilke, Rilke, um, the, my, one of my favorite poets, he said, the child bent becomes the bender. Yeah. Yeah. Unless there's something in there that 
can can take the child to a place where they can see like okay yep those are my that's my wounds and i'm not going to go forward yeah yeah i have a quote that uh, goes something like if you want to know why you can't let go of something that isn't right for you just look at what it would cost you to stop doing it i like that so that that for anyone that's sort of trying to navigate trying to make sense of how and where they might be getting in the way of their own you know discovery their own healing their own wholeness um it, it's it's not it's not that you're so broken and it's not that you know you just don't know how to do it it's that the cost of the cost of healing is is high and more and more so if we've experienced trauma yeah, well, what's his name? Uh, Anthony DeMello, another great writer. He uh, he was a Jesuit man from India, but he was all, I. He died too young. He was in his early fifties in the eighties. I I referred to him as a real mystic. He wrote this great book called Awareness. And in coming out of the Catholic tradition and the Indian Hindu tradition, he he re, he reinterprets the Gospels, you know, um, but reinterprets some of it in a very profound way, but. Um, he he said um, that that was the intention to heal. He said no. Most of us don't want heal. We to heal. We want relief. Right. Healing is painful. Yeah, we want relief. That's why we we're talking earlier about oh, you know take a pill or you know just avoid that or don't talk about it or yeah. And I, I think this choice that I think we all need to make. It's, it's embedded in the hero's journey. You know, we, we all need to go into the dark cave. It's part of what, what the meaning of our lives involves, like becoming into real relationship with the meaning of our lives, I think involves this distinct ego death and then no one can escape it. And for everyone, in spite of our history, it will feel like the end of you. And for good reason, right? Like it needs to be so. That, that us waking up to the fullness of our existence involves us letting go of, of who we think we are and what we think that means. Um, yeah, and I'm just always honored to, to share time and space with people who, who kind of quote unquote get it and, and that are supporting others in getting it. Um, not enough time, Bill, uh, thank yeah. you so much. Anything else you'd like to say to kind of oh, I, I, for us? This has been great. It's really good to see you again. I hope everything's going well, and you're now your your new digs settle in. And I would love to have another conversation with you, whether it's through this or another way. Yeah, great. yeah. I, you're you're on a, a relatively short list of of people I will right. always be interested in in getting into these conversations with. Uh, we will do it again, and hopefully, at some point, we get to do it in person. Thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to the Better Relationship Podcast brought to you by RelationFlix. Please subscribe to the podcast and you can go and check us out at relationflix.com. We look forward to sharing so much more with you. And until next time, my friends, love well.